Hi again. I'm David Wilson, the editor and the publisher of the United Church Observer. And you're listening to the first Observer podcast for 2016. It's produced by members of the magazine's editorial department. In this episode, we'll bring you some of the best stories and interviews from recent issues of the magazine, as well as insights from our contributors. During the next while, we'll hear from journalist and activist Sally Armstrong and writer Debbie McMillan. First, I'd like to share one of my recent observations columns with you. On the eve of the Paris climate talks late last year, a childhood friend posted a black-and-white photograph from the late 1950s. It shows her fedora-topped father playing shinny with three youngsters. They were on a rink in front of their home in southwestern Ontario. Long shadows on the ice suggest a sparkling cold winter's day. You can almost feel your toes tingle. My friend's timing was serendipitous. The Paris climate talks began with a consensus that had eluded earlier summits. Climate change is real, and we are about to enter a new and perilous relationship with the weather. As if to underscore the point, a strong El Nino system was producing the warmest November and December on record in central Canada. It was a foretaste, perhaps, of an overheated future when scenes like the ones in my friend's photograph will be fading memories. As futurist Sanjay Khanna recently wrote in The Observer, we are on the cusp of profound uncertainty. Lives and activities that revolved around predictability will be turned upside down by climate chaos. Seasons will be defined by their extremes, not their norms. Volatile weather will keep us constantly on edge, wondering what's coming next. Back when the photograph of my friend's dad was taken, we generally knew where we stood with the weather. What we got was what we expected. This seasonal certainty made for more certainty in life itself. We were in right relationship with the weather, not at its mercy. For we northerners, I can think of no expression of that relationship more eloquent than the backyard ice rink. It's a beautifully simple harmony of natural elements, water and winter. A patch of ground rendered moribund by autumn comes to life again in midwinter as a sheet of ice that beckons the housebound to lace up and venture outside. Rinks differ, but as anyone who has ever built one will attest, one thing is true of them all. Flood it, and they will come. Like my friend's dad, my father built a rink for me and my siblings almost every winter. As I grew older, my brother and I collaborated with other neighborhood kids to create rinks that stretched over two or three backyards. Many years later, my wife and I bought our first house. For me, the rink-friendly backyard was as much of a selling point as the house itself. I took great pleasure in building rinks for our kids and their friends. After everyone else had gone to bed, I loved heading outside to scrape and sweep the snow off the ice, then lay down a fresh coat of water with a garden hose. Afterwards, I'd often sit on the back steps just to admire the dark, glistening surface and to drink deeply of the cold, clean air, feeling at one with winter. As I wrote this a few days before Christmas, people were walking around in light jackets and sneakers. Not even artificially made ice rinks were usable. 
Few complained about the freakish warmth, but few celebrated it either. El Nino may have been the official explanation, but climate change was on the tip of everyone's tongue. Something is askew in the natural order of things. The weather is getting away on us. At the Paris climate talks, world leaders finally agreed on a binding deal that might rein in climate change in a few decades. It's a global deal, but its success or failure will be measured locally in how the weather affects people on the ground, or in the case of Canada, on the ice. Let's pray that the sounds of churning steel blades and young voices echoing in the frosty air don't become relics of a paradise lost. I'm a child of the 60s. We were overthrowing everything, including the way women and girls were treated. So by the time I left high school and got into university and realized all the rules were different for girls, I thought that was rubbish and it was time to change that. So as an observer, I had first-hand evidence that things were available to, to men that were not available to women. I remember in my third year, my father died. And, and, and in those days, and maybe today it's the same, when somebody dies, all the money is tied up. You can't, I had no money. I mean, I had more than no money. I had terrible sadness and, and, uh, and agony with our family. But uh, my dean said, no problem. I played varsity uh, sports. He said, you're an athlete. Go to the Martlett Foundation, which was the graduate foundation. They have money. They have scholarships all over the place, especially for athletes. Go and you can get money from them. And I did. And they did have lots of money, but it was only for boys. Now, you might think that happened 300 years ago. It didn't. It happened when I was in my third year at university. So it was a very powerful lesson to me. You're listening to Sally Armstrong, an award-winning Canadian journalist and human rights activist. For much of her career, Armstrong has reported on the harsh realities of women in conflict zones. It all began for her in 1992, when she worked in Sarajevo. She was covering the effects of war on children when she heard rumors about rape camps. No one else seemed interested in the issue, so she followed it up on her own. Armstrong recently talked to the Observer about this, and more, at her Toronto office. In 1992, I was in Sarajevo doing a story on the effect of war on children. And the day before I was to leave, I began to hear rumors about rape camps. And you know as a journalist, one of the first casualties of war is the truth. And you have to know that, and you have to be very careful with the way you gather your information and the number of sources you're checking. And I thought, this cannot be. This is before Darfur, before um, Congo, before Rwanda. I could not imagine that, that the enemy were gathering up or, or one side was gathering up the wives, the daughters, the, the mothers of the enemy and putting them in camps and gang raping them. I'd never heard of such a thing. And uh, I started to ask, but I was leaving the next day. I, f I asked all day long. Finally, I heard it from more and more credible people. I knew there was a story, but I was working for a magazine. I could race this headline story to press in about three months. So I gathered everything I could, names, anecdotes, mobile phone numbers. I came home the next day and I went to a large news agency in Toronto and I handed over the data. I said, give this to one of your reporters. This is a heck of a story. 
And uh, I went back to my office. I waited for the headline. Nothing. I waited a week, two weeks, three weeks. Seven weeks later, there was a four-line blurb in Newsweek magazine that said they're gang-raping women in the Balkans. I phoned the guy I gave the material to, and he was giggling nervously when he heard my voice. Oh, I knew he'd be phoning me. I said, what happened? He said, you know, I, I was going to assign it. It's a good story. But, you know, I got busy and, you know, I was on deadline and, you know, I forgot. 20,000 women were gang raped, some of them eight years old, some of them 80 years old, and you forgot? I said, oh, Sally, don't be so hard on me. You're always on about women. So my team said, we should do it. I said, it'll take us three months to get it to our readers. They said, so? So two days later, I was back on the plane, went over, did the story. It was incredibly well received by our readers. Bags, bags of mail about it. Our readers went to the UN. They, they raised the roof about this. And I looked at this and thought, if no one else wants to do these stories, they're going to be my stories. And that's, that's what I did. I wrote the first story about what happened to the women under the Taliban. And I was there during that period. I still am. And I thought it was wishful thinking on my part. And I did the research. And I found out I was right. And I wanted to be the first one to publish it because we've worked, everybody has worked so hard, so long to try to alter the status of women and girls. But what I started, I started to see it through the actions of women, the, the way they were speaking out about their own issues. Women who never dared to challenge authority before had started holding up the holy book and saying, where is it written in here that I can't go to school? And it's not written in the Quran. Where is it written, my mother can't go to work? It's not there either. And they started putting the pieces together. Someone's tricking us. And, and there were other ways. Um, women in Africa said to me, we have no right to say no to sex. If, if we don't form a group and, and take action against the impunity of men, we'll all be dead from AIDS. Because remember, AIDS had taken on the face of women. Women in Asia realized in the 90s with the rise of Islamism that they'd become the targets of their own, own religious fundamentalists or extremists. And they knew they had to form groups to protect themselves, and they did. And that's how women living under Muslim laws formed and um, others, but they're, they're probably the biggest one. I started seeing women, because the women's movement was a Western women's movement. It, it, it didn't take hold very much in Africa or Asia because it didn't apply in the same way. Now these women were, were forming groups and, and I thought, is this where the liftoff came from? But that's not where the liftoff came from. It came from Facebook. It was Facebook that did this because it's the first time women in the north, the south, the east and the west could speak to each other. And what a conversation they started to have. Women wearing hijab found out that despite what the fundamentalists told them, women wearing jeans were not whores after all. There was so much rubbish removed once the conversation began. I dare say it was the worst day in the lives of misogynists. We can count the, the, the lives of people that have been saved. We have huge numbers of girls in school that were never in school before. You know, in Afghanistan, they refer to their illiteracy as being blind. I said to a woman, 
why do you call it being blind? She said, I couldn't read, so I couldn't see what was going on. It's so true that thugs in power keep people illiterate so they can't see what's going on. Now people are in school, and this message is moving village to village to village. It's almost as though the gig is up, and people are saying, you've, you've been fooling us all the time. So there's more girls in school, you can measure that. You can measure the action of women and girls saying, we, we want to be in the parliament, we want to be on the council, we want to be at the village meeting. Now we're not at the finish line, that, that would be enormously premature. It goes on all over the place. Children, mm-hmm. girls and women are abused like that, <clears throat> sidelined, marginalized, beaten, shot, murdered. It goes on. There's 39 civil wars going on in the world today. 31 of them are old wars. They keep restarting. You know why? Because they end with ceasefires of exhaustion, rather than ceasefires that deal with what was wrong in the first place. According to Hillary Clinton, the same three things are wrong in every civil war. Poverty, lack of education, and the oppression of women. Who ever heard that before? Like, it's as though It's as though we've turned this page. We have a better understanding of what war creates. It doesn't just create men shooting bullets and now women too, at each other. So when men are in charge of the ceasefire, they want to say, you surrender, you hand over your arms, you lost, we take from you. A woman has a different view at the table. She says, stop it. Get those mines out of my field. I have to plant my crop or we have nothing to eat. Hurry up with this. Get this out of here. Stop fighting with each other. I want the schools open. My kids have to go to school or they're going to drive me nuts. They've been in the house for four years. It's a different point of view. One as valuable as the other. You know, I used to be a phys ed teacher. And people often say, what the heck good does that do you? But you know, I spend a lot of time in places where there's rocket-propelled grenades flying around and broken buildings. And I'm often enough taking shelter in a place with a bunch of kids who are scared to death. And I know 300 games. So I taught them to do like somersaults and headstands and I got a kick out of that. (laughs) To, To see a kid laughing, to see a kid becoming competitive to see girls playing soccer when they thought only the boys could play. When pe- especially if people are frightened, you lose your sense of self. You, a girls especially need to develop self-esteem and self-worth and self-confidence. And um, sports will do that. So <clears throat> what can people do? Your voice is your most valuable tool. But people don't realize how powerful their voices are. I admit I've wrecked a few dinner parties in my day. (laughs) But when you speak up, you plant a seed. You don't have to scream. You don't have to burn a car or your bra. If you speak up, you plant a seed. Because other people begin to wonder if their thinking needs altering or examining. And, And the more we say, it's not okay with me, the more that becomes a country protest, and the more your government knows we shouldn't be buying oil from someone that doesn't let a woman drive a car, whatever. Um, 
And as for the women over there, they know what to do. And what they need from us is not our know-how, we could share knowledge, but they don't need us to lead at all. What they need is maybe financial support or our support. We, they need to know we're cheering for them. I have a job to do. I'm a journalist. I chase down the story. Um, I hope I get the facts right. Um, it's hard to leave those stories behind. Uh, they play on the back of my eyelids when I come home. I wonder, you know, are they okay? Is it safe where they are? Um, but that's my job to tell the story, to bring that story to readers or, or listeners and to get it right. That was our conversation with Sally Armstrong. Our interview with her can be found in the February edition of The Observer and at ucobserver.org. Her latest book is called Ascent of Women, A New Age is Dawning for Every Mother's Daughter and it's published by Penguin Random House. Writer and minister Debbie McMillan recently wrote about her depression and anxiety disorder. As she explains in her article entitled A Light in the Darkness, McMillan's symptoms started after a challenging year capped by an incident of ugly racism. Have a listen. I have depression along with an anxiety disorder. Like one in five Canadians, I am a person with mental illness. When I started to get sick, it was November of a tempestuous year. Our church had completed a project and while we did so without incurring debt, our emotions paid a price. There were arguments and tension in a small community doesn't easily subside. Just as things were settling down, I received an anonymous text message. I didn't recognize the number, but I knew the content way too well. It was the N-word, sent on a Sunday morning. Who would do that? Who had my private cell number? Was I safe? My mind began its liturgy of anxiety. By Christmas, I was exhausted. I didn't want to leave the safety of my bed. I didn't look forward to the day. I was defensive and angry. And by January, I couldn't connect with anyone or even make eye contact. Friends, family, and congregants asked me what was wrong, but I told them I was just tired. People also offered advice. Everything from take vitamins to have more fun We've all given that kind of advice. We know it's not the result of careful or care-filled listening. When a person is feeling down, their mood impacts ours. We don't want to be affected, so we offer quick fixes. But compassion means to suffer with. Still, if we're honest, do we really want to sit with someone during a panic attack? To hold them as they sob? Who would want to sit with Elijah of the Bible? He had God on his side, but Elijah couldn't focus on the miracles God had performed through him. All he could hear was the voice of Jezebel, 
who threatened to kill him. Afraid, he fled from her, from his call and from himself. Then depression took hold. Elijah stopped functioning. He spoke into the darkness of a densely shaded broom tree, saying, Oh Lord, take away my life. In 2009, 3,890 Canadians took their own lives, according to Statistics Canada. And more than 90% of people who commit suicide have a mental disorder, usually depression. Like Elijah's, my anxiety became depression. And while I didn't find the dense shade of a broom tree, I found a dark parking lot in my community. I turned off my car and sat in the dark. I could see my breath swirling in clouds as I wept, my tears stinging my cheeks. And then I closed my eyes and said, God, if I can't do this anymore, this life, this ministry, then just take my life because I'm useless. When I opened my eyes, I became aware of something unexpected. I was so focused on my own darkness that I missed what was sitting right in front of me, a lighthouse. It was made of ice and built for a winter festival. In the pre-dawn hours, that lighthouse was glowing, the whole lighthouse, not just the light in its top. And in that moment, I knew I was staring into the light of God began to burn away the shadows in my mind. Over the following months, a combination of medication, exercise, rest, spiritual disciplines, and therapy helped me recover. Perhaps what I experienced is best expressed in the words of another prophet, Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who lived in a land of deep darkness on them, light has shined. Debbie McMillan is a minister at Unity United Church in Vasey, Ontario. Her spirit story was published in the February edition of The Observer and can be found at ucobserver.org. You've been listening to The Observer podcast, which can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and at ucobserver.org, where you can also find links to everything we've talked about in this episode. Also, you can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at UC underscore Observer. This podcast was recorded by David Wallen and produced by Kevin Spurgaitis. Music was provided by Poddington Bear through the Free Music Archive. And it's hosted by me, David Wilson. The Observer's print and online editions are put together every month by me, Jocelyn Bell, Kaylee Moore, Shama Benambarak, Mike Milne, Ross Wolford, and Kevin Spurgaitis. We'd like to acknowledge the financial support of the Government of Canada through the Canada Periodical Fund of the Department of Canadian Heritage. That's it. We'll be back with another Observer podcast in a little while. Until then, take care.